If you got a Bible, turn with me to the book of Amos. Amos. Some of you are like, where is Amos? You have a table of contents, right, in the front of your Bible. Turn there. I use it sometimes as well. Um, turn there. It'll tell you on which page in your Bible is the book of Amos. Little Old Testament prophet tucked away there in the middle of the minor prophets, and that's where we're going to be for the next seven weeks as a church family series entitled Let Justice Roll. Now, as we look at the book of Amos for the next several weeks, one of the things I want to say at the outset of this message this morning, I'm probably going to bring one of the primary rules of preaching, um, and I'm, I'm not going to give you a whole ton of application this morning. Uh, what I want to do is give you an overview of the book a little bit. You know, whenever you explore anything, right, if you were to leave Dallas, Texas and go down to the Amazon River, Amazon jungle, for an exploratory trip of that massive expanse of rainforest, you could explore it in one of two ways, right? You could explore it by getting down on the ground level and you could take a machete and you could just chop trails through all that mangled, gnarly undergrowth and you could all the different aspects of the rainforest. You could see all the different wildlife. You could see all the different species. You could see all the colorful birds and reptiles. Right? You could see all the different types of plants that live and thrive in that subtropical environment. You could see the massive canopy above your head. And you could see the waters beneath your, or the of your feet there that cut through all of the, the, the river delta and the tributaries that dump into the main river, that massive channel of water. You could cut through all the underbrush and see every little detail. Or you could get in a plane or a helicopter and you could fly over that rainforest. And you could see the, the, the layout of the rainforest. You could see where the rivers bend and turn. Things that you could not see if you were down in the underbrush. Right, you can see where the fields open up. You can see where the canopy, the, the tops of the canopy is of that massive rainforest. And that's what we want to do this morning and as we explore the book of Amos. I want to fly over a little bit of the book and give you some of the themes that emerge out of the book because that's what we're going to be diving into for the next several weeks together. We're not going to, in the next seven weeks, chop through every single detail in the book of Amos and explain every single image and look at every single verse. But what we want to see are some of the big ideas that rise out of that book, right, out of that prophet's message. So for the next seven weeks, we're going to be flying over, taking a look at some of the themes or topics that emerge there for us that we as a church would do well to turn our ears and eyes toward today. And so this morning, what I want to do is start by giving you just a brief overview of the big idea of the book of Amos and then some of the other themes that we're going to be teasing out over the course of these next several weeks together, right? And whenever you come to the book of Amos, one of the first things you ask, one of the first questions in front of us is, who is Amos? Well, we don't know a ton about Amos, but we just know where he came from and what he was doing before God called him. In Amos chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says Amos was a shepherd from Tekoa. Now, Tekoa was a little small town in the southern kingdom of Judah, located about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. Right? It was a, kind of a no-name place. Right? It was kind of a backwater a little bit. And he was a shepherd out in the fields whenever God called him to go and prophesy. Now, God did not tell Amos to go and prophesy to Judah, where he was from. He sent him to the northern kingdom of Israel to prophesy to them, to confront them, to speak to them. And whenever God sends Amos from the southern kingdom 
into the northern kingdom, he sends him with this message. The big picture message, and it's this, is that the Lord roars in judgment. See, the, the book of Amos is full of judgment language. Okay? Now, so for the next seven weeks, we're going to have to buckle our seatbelts a little bit, all right? All right? You might have to wear some protective gear. Might you might need some of that over the next seven weeks, but it, that's the main message is that God is roaring in judgment. Right? In, in two verses at the outset of the book, in Amos 1 2 and Amos 3 8, listen to what God says or what Amos writes about what God is doing. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion, in verse 2, and utters His voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. In other words, every topographical area within that region heard the voice of the Lord as it roars out of the southern kingdom towards the northern kingdom as God raises up the prophet. Like a lion. In Amos 3.8, it says, The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy? Amos says, I've got to say what God is saying. I've got to say what God is saying. God has spoken, who can but prophesy? God roared like a lion. And I've got to speak the words that He is speaking. Now, when you think of a lion, that image, the things that come to mind are not typically safe soft and cuddly, right? When you think of kittens, you think of safe, soft, and cuddly. So I'm having a dinner at a friend's house on Friday evening and uh, their little girl brought me pictures of cats. Like, I don't want to see cats. I don't like cats. I'm allergic to cats. Okay, Cats make my eyes water and look bloodshot like I've been out on an all-night binge. That's how I look with a cat. Okay, I sneeze incessantly, my nose runs, my throat gets scratchy and itchy. I don't like cats, but I just looked at every little picture and I said, oh, so cute and soft and cuddly. But that is the that you get when you think of a lion. A lion is not a safe, soft, cuddly kitten. It's a massive, mighty, and majestic beast. That's what you think of when you think of a lion. In the days of Amos, too, listen, there were no such zoos. Okay, there were no cats. And plate glass behind which these lions were kept. Right? You walk by at the zoo right at feeding time when they throw the piece of meat out there and the lion just devours it in all of its power. Imagine that removed from the plate glass and the cage with all of its natural instincts still in it, intact because it hasn't been kind of domesticated to some degree in a zoo. And that's the kind of image that Amos is speaking of when he speaks of God roaring in judgment. There's no National Geographic documentaries that put these animals on display from the safety of their living rooms. Whenever the people of Amos' day thought of lions, they thought of a scary, majestic, mighty, massive animal. That whenever it roared... That whenever it roared, it shook the thresholds of creation. I, th I think of C.S. Lewis's depiction of Jesus in his in famous Chronicles of Narnia. He pictures him as a lion named Aslan, right? And so Aslan, as, as in, in the cinematic depiction of Lewis's uh, writing, you see Aslan the consultation with the white witch in the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And they're talking about what to do about Edmund's sin, about his betrayal of his family, and he sells them for a piece of candy. 
And Aslan, as he, as he meets with the white witch and, and they're talking about justice must be satisfied and they strive that it would be his life for Edmund's life. And when they emerge from the tent of the movie, the white witch turns and looks back toward the great lion and says, how do I know, she questions his integrity, how do I know you will keep your word? And at that moment, he doesn't speak. You remember what he does? He lets out the most billowing, rumbling roar that shakes the trees, that shakes the rocks, that shakes all of creation. That is the depiction of the lion in Amos chapter 1, in Amos chapter 3. That when he roars, all of creation knows it and hears it. Because he roars in judgment. Now some of us struggle with that idea of God being a judging God. Right? God being a God of anger. God being a God of wrath. We wrestle with that idea. And here's why. Can I tell you why we wrestle with that so much in our culture in particular? One of the reasons we wrestle with that so much in this culture is because when we think of our anger, our anger is sourced in one of three things and predominantly in two of them. Our anger is sourced either in fear, control, or love. Fear, control, or love. But for us as fallen humans, most frequently our anger rises from fear or control. There's something that struck our hearts with anxiety. There's something that has struck our hearts with fear. And so out of that fear, because we don't know how else to respond, we just get angry. Or we feel like control is slipping away from us in a particular situation, so we rise up in anger. Most frequently, that's what stirs our anger. But listen, I want to tell you something, that whenever God gets angry at sin, and He does, the Bible is clear on that, that His wrath stands against all those who would run and rebel against Him. Right? But whenever He gets angry, it's never out of fear, because there's nothing that strikes heart in the fear of God. He's all-powerful, almighty. There's nothing afraid. Nor is it that God feels like He's losing control because God is all, all, all things. He governs all sovereign above all things. He's guiding and governing all of creation toward His good end. So it's not like God is, like, like history is slipping through God's fingers and doesn't know what else to do, so He just gets angry because people won't listen to Him. But rather, His is always stirred by love. It's always stirred by love. See, your anger is stirred by love sometimes as well. If you're married, you know this. You know this. Because you have a particular kind of, kind of jealousy for your spouse, don't you? You're jealous for them. Not for them, but for them. For their affection. For their attention. Right? And you want what's best for them. Or for your children as well, Right? Sometimes your anger, listen, if we're to be honest, sometimes our anger with our kids is out of fear or out of control. We're afraid of where they're headed, but we also feel like they, they don't listen to us, and so we just get angry trying to kind of double down. Like, you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to show you, you need to listen to me. <laughs> but listen, the best anger and a righteous anger is always out of love. It's always birthed out of love. Right? So sometimes you get angry with your kids. Why? Because you do see them in their lives and out of love. 
love. You move towards them and sometimes speak hard words to them or discipline them and pull back some. It's a gracious thing whenever you see someone derailing their lives, jam them up a bit to kind of shut them down some. It's a gracious thing for that to take place. And listen, that is always where God's anger is stirred from. It never comes from fear. It never comes from control. It's always out of love. It's all because God's heart is always desiring what is best for us. But he's still roaring in judgment. Because his anger is still stirred by our sins. See, this God who is roaring, listen, church. Amos gives us a few pictures of him. He kind of steps back for a moment from all the oracles and prophecies of judgment. He steps back for a moment and listen to what he says about this God in a few places. In Amos chapter 4, verse 13, it says, For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. This God who took the mountains like it was Plato's hands and formed them. Those massive rocks that rise out of the earth, earth's crust. He formed them like Plato. It's a big God. In addition, in, in Amos 5, he says, He who made the Pleiades and Orion and turns deep darkness into morning and darkens day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name, who takes the constellations of the heavens and he, he, he plays with them like tinker toys. This is the God who is roaring in judgment, a big God. He's not a small God. He's not a tame God. He is a lion who is roaring in judgment. In Amos 9, 5, 6, listen, 5 to 6, listen to what he says. He says, The Lord of hosts, He who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again. The Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is His name. This God who causes the, the river to swell whenever the rains the sea, whenever the rains dry. This is the God who is roaring. The God of all creation. Not a tribal deity. But the God who rules and reigns over all things. He is roaring in judgment. But why? Why is He roaring in judgment? Well, Amos gives us an indication now, what I, what I want to show you this morning is this, is where this judgment, these oracles, prophecies of judgment are coming from is out of a root that has produced some fruit, right? Roots always bear fruit, don't they? Right? I, was, uh, I saw Blake yesterday and, and he pulled up his pictures like a proud dad, but not of his baby, of his garden. <laughs> right, the new baby, no, no pictures of the baby, squaw and zucchini and all the produce like man this was last night's haul right because he had cultivated the ground he had put some seeds in there and they had taken root and they ultimately produced right fruit in terms of vegetables right it always every root has a fruit and the main tap root that has excited God's anger and judgment on the people of Israel in this day 
is the same taproot that the people of God struggle with in every day. And it is forsaking the Lord. Forsaking the Lord. Listen to what Amos says in Amos chapter 4, verses 4 to 12. He says, Come to Bethel and transgress, and to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bethel and Gilgal have become the centers of worship in the northern kingdom whenever they broke away from the southern kingdom. They become the centers of worship. He says, come here and transgress. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Is leavened and proclaim will offerings. Publish them for, as, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. He's kind of almost being a little bit of sarcastic with them, right? Go ahead and come. Come to the places of worship and transgress. Come to the places and worship and multiply your sins, your iniquities. And this is what he says in verse 6. All the ways that God has been trying to come after them as they've rebelled against him. All the things that he has done so far to get their attention to try and draw them back to himself. Listen to what he says. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. That doesn't mean that he sent dentists into every city to give, and hygienists to give them cleanings. I gave you cleanness of teeth means this, there was no food. There was nothing for you to eat, and so your teeth never needed to be clean. They just stayed clean because their food supply dried up. Verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. Three months to go before you could bring anything in from the fields and the heavens were shut up. They were as bronze and rain did not fall because God was trying to woo and get his people to return to him. But yet you did not return to me, says the Lord. Verse 8, so two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied, yet you did not return to me, the Lord. There's no water here. There's water over here. So you got multiple peoples traveling from place to place in caravans searching for water, and yet they refuse to return to the Lord. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees that the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. And yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Lord, over and over and over and over and over, God has been moving towards them. God has been moving towards them in judgment, seeking their repentance to return to Him. And over and over again, we're told, yet they did not return to the Lord. They forsook Him. They abandoned Him. The people of Amos' day, listen, they were not all that different than the people of our day. While they're honored with their lips, like Jesus even said in the Gospels, their hearts were far from Him. They would show up and they would go through their ritual services of worship. And yet there was a, they would walk out the door the next day and they would crush and oppress the poor. Or they would engage in immorality. Or they would participate in idolatry. In fact, that Seeking the Lord, it bore these, at least these four fruit in the book of Amos. 
And by the way, this is where we're going for the next six to seven weeks. Looking at these kinds of fruit in our culture. The first one is this, is sexual immorality. In 2.7, we're told one of the very first things God says to Israel. Right, because listen, man, this is, this is like, this is good stuff. Because whenever Amos starts his prophecy, he starts with all the nations surrounding Israel. He's like, God's going to get you, Edom. God's going to get you, Philistia. God's going to get you, people of God. God's going to get you, the people of Syria. God's coming for you. God's coming for you. God's coming for you. For the three transgressions and for four. In other words, God's finally, there's been a completion of all your sin and iniquity that's risen up before God. And God's going to come and judge all these peoples. And I'm sure people are like, whoo, get them, right? They're eating popcorn, stands just watching on cheering on god god fall on them man fire burn them up let's go and then all of a sudden for the three transgressions yo for yay for four on judah they're like i knew we seceded for a reason right i knew we broke rank for a reason and then for the three transgressions of you israel what of them in 2 7 it says this a man and his father go into the same maiden so that they my holy name is profaned there, see, the, the root of all sexual sin in our lives is a forsaking of the lord it's a it's just fruit the root underneath all our sexual sin is a turning aside from god so you got sexual immorality. You have cultural idolatry is another fruit of this. In 526, it says, You shall take up Siketh your king, and Kayun your star god, images that you made for yourselves. See, the people of Israel had adopted the cultural practices, norms, and values, and idols of the nations that were around them. And God was jealous for their affection because his heart moved towards them in love as his that he had chosen as his own possession out of all the peoples of the earth. And yet they had forsaken him. They committed adultery on him, is the language of other prophets. Cultural idolatry. In addition, you got social injustice in the book of Amos. You got in 2 6 to 7, it says, Because they righteous Israel sells the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted so you got things in society where the poor were getting poorer the rich were getting richer and the rich were getting richer on the backs of the poor yeah we're gonna go there okay over the course of the next six to seven weeks. You also have an aim of personal hypocrisy. You got in four, four to five, where, where we had earlier, where Amos, God says, go ahead, and come. go ahead and come to the places of worship. Go ahead and come. Right? And participate in your hypocritical, solemn assemblies and feasts and festivals. Go ahead and come. Because I know you do whenever you are not people of God. So there's personal hypocrisy, sexual immorality, cultural idolatry, social injustice. All this is fruit of that root, forsaking the Lord. And then in 4.12, God says, 
Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. In other words, judgment's coming. And it, by the way, it did. About 40 to 50 years later, God raised up the Assyrians who came down into Israel, ransacked the northern kingdom, led their people away into bondage and captivity. And in 412, God says, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. Now listen, in the time that we have left this morning, what I want to do is ask It's going to set us up to these messages of the to meet the Lord who's coming and roaring in judgment. I want to give you three things. I told you it wouldn't be much these three things really quickly and then we're going to be done. The first one is this. You and I need over these next weeks as we explore the book of Amos together and with these issues, these fruit that rise out of that root in our particular culture. Some of you are going to be hard pressed I'm going to be hard-pressed. We're all going to be hard-pressed to sift what is political and what is biblical. Because listen, as Amos presses on some of these issues of injustice, as he presses on the issues of oppression of peoples, as he presses on the issues of inequity in society, as he presses on these issues, some of us are going to hearts rise up within us and what they're going to be saying to us is this come on pastor why you listen i come to this church because you just teach the bible right you stay in the word why are you getting political on us now and you're going to begin to feel some of those things rise up and here's what i'll say to you today and i'll say it to you each week subsequently is this is that you and i need to learn to sift between what is biblical and what is political because everything that you think is just political may also be rooted deeply in a biblical vision for life un- under God's rule and reign in his kingdom I am not a registered Republican nor a registered Democrat neither one my, my vote is for Jesus okay he is the one I want ruling and reigning over me. When I have to vote in an election in a democratic republic, I vote for the candidate I believe would rule and Sometimes I may abstain from that because there's a good choice on either side. Okay? But listen, not bent one direction or the other. But for some of us, listen, every time you hear someone get on TV, begin to discuss their particular perspective or their cultural narrative, if you feel something rise up within you, it says, come, like, channel, come on, man. Right? It may be at times that you have a good job of sifting what is biblical and what is political because some of those things... Some of those having a heart of compassion that moves towards other people to listen to their perspective and hear them. That's biblical. That's biblical. And Amos is going to press on issues that many of us think are just rooted in the politics of the day. But I want to say something that what Amos sees them rooted in is not the politics of our day, but the image of God in your brother and sister, regardless of economic class, race, ethnicity, 
education level. And in a stratified society where what Amos is addressing in that day in Israel needs to be addressed in this day. And listen, not only in America, but in the church. So we're going to press on some of those things in the weeks to come. So begin now sifting as you read through the book of Amos, what is political, what is biblical? Second thing, as we prepare to meet God in the book of Amos, as we sift through is this, is that we need to adopt a posture of repentance. Adopt a posture of repentance. See, true repentance does not stop with being broken over feelings or feeling sorry for how we've lived or the things that we've said or what we've done. It goes on to change the way that we live. Listen to what Amos says. In Amos 5, 4, he says, For thus says the Lord of the house of Israel, Seek me and live. See, throughout this book, right, there are, there are calls, there are appeals. Yes, God's judgment is coming. But he's continually calling people to repentance because God's heart is not hardened to the point where he just wants to rain down judgment on them without any consideration for wooing, drawing, calling them repentance. He says, seek me and live. Then further down in chapter 5, he doesn't just spiritualize this, right? But he actually puts teeth to it. And listen to what he says in 5.14. Seek good and not evil that you may live. So that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. That God may yet relent and give grace and avert disaster from falling upon us that I'm speaking to you about today. So repent, seek Him and live. But this is what it looks like. It doesn't just mean, but I feel really bad on Sunday morning and I sing a few songs and then I go out the door. It means when you walk out the door, it says seek good, not evil. And then in the pursuit of good, He says you might live. See, a posture of repentance is not just spiritualized repentance. That's what we think of it in our particular context. We think that it's spiritualized, right? It just kind of has to do with what's going on, kind of the feelings that I have in here. It's privatized, so it's nobody else's business. That's what repentance is. But listen, in Amos and and throughout the rest of the Bible, a posture of true repentance overflows into public repentance of the hands, not just the private repentance of the heart. And listen, as a church, as a church that is aiming to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into our community and across the globe, if we're aiming for that. We're not merely trying to shape the private lives of the people who show up in this room Sunday after Sunday. You know what else we're trying to shape? The public lives of people who show up in this room Sunday after Sunday. And so on the heels of six weeks of looking at prayer, shaping our private lives before God as we come to Him and appeal to Him and pour out our hearts to Him as we work through the Lord's Prayer for the last six weeks together, we turn our attention now to trying to shape the public lives of disciples who would follow hard after Jesus in this particular culture. 
so that our economic realities, our social concerns, our vocational lives, our moral commitments would be reshaped by this vision for life that God has. And that we would agree with Him where our lives have been derailed and we've adopted cultural norms as opposed to biblical ones and we haven't sifted well the political from the biblical. So we're, we need to adopt a posture of repentance. Maybe today you say, God, as you press on my heart for the next six weeks through this minor prophet and we look at some really hard hit public issue. There are areas of my heart that are hard to you. God, would you those would you chisel those away? Because I want my hands to be a reflection of yours in public spheres of life. And so maybe it starts for you by praying that prayer today. Third and finally the book of Amos isn't all judgment. Only eight and a half chapters of the nine are judgment. <laughs> you get to the end of chapter nine. In Amos chapter nine, verses 11 to 15, I want to read it to you. It says this. After speaking of the destruction of the nation of Israel, he says this. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches, and raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. In other words, there's going to be a harvest that's going to come in. That God's going to restore the fortunes of His people. And He says this, The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. In the Old Testament, in prophetic language, wine was often synonymous with God's blessing being showered and poured out upon the people. That God would once again restore their fortunes. He says in verse 14, those very words, I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall reap the cities that inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. And I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. End of book. See, the very end of the book, God, in a book, in a book that is filled with language of judgment, of God's anger and wrath against sin, rebellion and forsaking the Lord of the fruit that rises out of that in their lives personally and in their culture publicly God comes to say there is yet hope in the midst of judgment coming so finally as we prepare to meet God in the pages of this book over these next six to seven weeks here's what I want to encourage you to do make of you in the room is to flee to God for refuge. Flee to God for refuge. Some of you have heard me say this before, and I'll say it again this morning, is that there is no 
no refuge from God in His judgment. There is none. There is only refuge in God. There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God because the judgment that is coming is inescapable. Listen, listen to what Amos says elsewhere. I'll give you two more texts and then I'm going to press on this and then we're going to be done. He says this in Amos 5, 18 to 20. Woe to you, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament was God's day of judgment in which He came upon His people. Why do you have the day of the Lord? It is dark. And then he gives a lot of really vivid imagery. He says, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? You escape one animal, you only to run into another one. And then you run into your house and slam the door, you get bit by a rattlesnake. He says, that's, it's inescapable. He says in chapter 2, verse 13, Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift. The strong shall not retain his strength. Nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand. And he who is swift of foot shall not save himself. Nor shall he ride the horse, uh, who, ride, he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among mighty men shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. He says, I don't care what your 40 time is, what your CrossFit records are, no matter how fast you are, how strong you are, you will not escape it or stand under it for yourself. That's the promise that God makes as He announces judgment. See, there's no refuge from this lion who roars in judgment. That was true for Israel. And listen, church, it's true for you and I as well. Because what took place in Israel, in, 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 whenever they were ransacked by the Assyrians, or even for the southern kingdom, whenever they were ransacked by the Babylonians and led into captivity, was, really, was merely a foreshadow, a foretaste of what will take place at the end of this age. In which... God will come. And in so doing, He will right every wrong. And the other side of that judgment is the hope of a glorious future for all those who have not sought refuge from God, but have only sought refuge in God. And the way you and I seek refuge in God is by fleeing to the cross of Christ. You know that? It's the only place that you can find refuge from the judgment of God. Have you done that? Have you fled to Him? Have you sought Him? Have you come under the shadow of His wings, under His protection? Have you tasted of His provision? Have you found Him to be your refuge? 
so that as his judgment falls, that he would shelter you from it himself because you can't outrun it, you can't outsquat it, you can't outshoot it, and you can't outlast it. But you can find refuge from it and you can find it in the cross. And the hope of an eternal glory future with God. In which all the roots of that fruit will be done away with once and for all. So these next six weeks, we've got some sifting to do. Next six weeks, we've got some true repentance. It was next six weeks, maybe some fleeing to do. So we come to Christ for the first time for forgiveness, cleansing, and refuge, or maybe, maybe we come to Him for the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth time as God continues to unearth areas of life in which we need forgiveness, cleansing, and refuge. Not that God to save you six times. He saves you one time. But you come to Him over and over and over, acknowledging your refuge under His wings. Pray together. Father, we come today acknowledging that we need poor and wretched and pitiable and vile and God those are not popular terms nobody in our culture says sign me up for those adjectives but God that is that is what we see when we look in the mirror and see our sin and that we are unable to save ourselves from it that whenever you roar we melt along with all of creation because we have forsaken you. Our first parents forsook you in the garden and ever since that has been the natural bent of our hearts as we are born as those whose hearts run from you as opposed to running to you. Those who would want to seek refuge from you in all other kinds of experiences rather than seeking refuge in you and allowing you to reform our lives into the image of your Son. And so, Father, as we look over these next six weeks at some heart issues, issues of the heart, issues of our inner makeup that overflow into our public spheres of life, would you give us grace there? Would you meet us in your mercy? Would we taste of your tender passion and forgiveness even as we're confronted about sin in our lives? That we would know on the other side of this judgment is hope, is everlasting peace, is a day of blessing that has been accomplished for us by your Son at the cross so that we would not wither in despair, but we would rise up in repentance. We would say in this generation that your name and your renown will be the desire of our hearts, not only in our public, our private lives, but our public ones as well. Not only in our emotional lives, but in our financial, in our vocational, in our social 
lives. Not only in our hearts, but with our hands. Do you make us a church? takes your grace just as seriously. Father, as we sing together this morning, may we rejoice in the personal work of your Son. The one who has sheltered us under his wings as he spread out his arms in our place and for our sins. We pray it in Jesus' name.